I hate that. You feel really bad shutting it down like that. All right, next time I'm pitching a fit if some of y'all don't sit up front. All right, so I feel like my breath stinks because nobody ever comes up here. Um, hopefully you had a good rest over spring break for those of y'all with kids in school. For those of y'all with jobs, you're like, what's spring break? <laughs> we, we still worked all week. It's interesting uh, for the schooling years how it's a week where everything slows at least a little bit. I mean, sometimes it complicates some stuff at home because you got to figure out how to get everybody watched. But uh, uh, very quickly, the pace quickens again, as, as a lot of you already experienced. I got the call the other day wanting to know whether one of the boys was going to be able to play basketball next weekend. Want to know if he could play on Sunday and trying to, already trying to get my time which is just part of this world we live in here, right? I mean, always somebody wanting our time, wanting us to pick up the pace. And it seems like uh, sometimes we can never catch up. This passage that we're going to read a little bit today uh, addresses that fairly fairly directly. So I'm I'm looking forward to reading it to you. I I am and I'm not because I'm going to, some of the stuff I read this week was just convicting personally. And every every week it has a, a, a level of that this week. Particularly so. So let me read to you uh, John chapter 5. I'm pray first. Jesus, it's an interesting time uh, of year, this, just the Sunday after Easter. In the church world, Easter is that Sunday where everybody kind of gets all amped up. And, and then uh, the week after, we, we, we don't want to forget your resurrection, Lord. We don't want to act like uh, <laughs> we had one big celebration and now we're done. We want to remember you risen today. Lord, we want your scriptures to be alive today. Uh, you know us. You know the change that needs to happen in our hearts. You know our young little church and the formation that it needs. So we pray that you would uh, you'd be with us today. Form us up in a way that's pleasing to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of John. If you're new to John, we're, uh, we're in chapter 5. Last week, we skipped way ahead. We went to chapter 20 because it, it tells the story of Jesus rising from the dead. And chapter 5 is an odd little story. I'm just, when I first read it, I'm like, do I really got to teach this? And um, the more I've read it, uh, the more excited I get about it and a little bit, a little bit bothered because it challenges me. Uh, Jesus heals a guy, and we're going to read this, this story. It's, it's, it's this it's strange. It's not like a lot of other moments where Jesus does something miraculous. So let me read a little bit. This is John chapter 5 and, and verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. So Jesus was up in Galilee, got Galilee in the north, and he came back south to Jerusalem. And he's, he's in town because he's there for the Sabbath, which is Saturday, right, in their culture. Saturday is a Sabbath. And they have these high Sabbaths, which are more important Sabbaths. And this is one of them. We don't know which one. We assume it's probably not the Passover, but it could be Passover. And here's what he says. And inside the city near the Sheep Gate were, uh, was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. And crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. If you go to a third world company, country today, you see stuff like this. You see poor invalids under a covering just for shelter. So you have these pools. You have this pool, and you just picture all these poor Folks, 
just, they prop themselves there every day and hope to beg, and, and you'll see a little bit more here in just a minute. One of the really cool things I read about this week is for, for ages, particularly in, when, when the modern age, if you don't know when that is, it, it started 400 or so years ago, but in the late 1800s, the critics of the Bible would constantly attack that verse right there because they would assume that the pool was a pentagon. It was five-sided because it has five, five coverings listed here. And, and so the folks would always say that John had to be written far after Jesus because Pentagon construction didn't exist for hundreds of years past this day. But what's cool is in the mid-1900s, they actually dug this pool up in Bethesda, all right? So right outside the sheet gate, they dug the pool up, and guess what? It was two pools. So it was a pool here, and there was a pool here, and it had a covering on this side and a covering on this side. So we got one on either side of each pool, which gives us four, and there was a ridge between it, and there was a covering up on top of the ridge, five coverings. So what's cool about that is sometimes the critics, they'll take a shot at the Scripture in an essence to try to disprove its accuracy. In reality, they proved that it was accurate. When it was dug up, it actually proves that John was written soon after the time of Jesus because in 70 A.D., what happened? The Romans came in and tore everything down. So when they found the pools, here they are, and you can find the remains of the bottoms of the coverings. Obviously, everything's not still standing when you do an archaeological dig, but it proves the Scripture is true. It's this really cool little, uh, little piece. But if you're reading the NLT, watch what happens. Verse 3 says, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on porches. Verse 5 says, one of the men lying there has... Do anybody have a problem with what I just did? There's no verse four. Is that weird? I mean, could the dude not count who numbered the verses? <laughs> like, like, he's just going through. I do that sometimes. You know, you count and you miss a number and you get it wrong, and especially you, when you're having to get something exact. He, verse four is missing. Well, it, it, here's what's kind of interesting. If you've got a New American Standard or a little bit older translation or a King James, it'll actually have a verse four, and it'll be in parentheses. You know why? Because most of the early, the most early manuscripts of the New Testament, of this book in particular, did not include verse 4. So a lot of folks believe that some years after somebody wrote that in. And, and what's cool, again, about archaeology and people going back and, and the science of, of the Bible, they've actually put that in parentheses, and NLT just takes it completely out because it wasn't written by John, it was written by somebody else. Doesn't change the meaning at all, but... Just got to know why there's no verse there. Uh, One of the men lying there was sick for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? (laughs) I don't know about you, but if I've been sick for 38 years and somebody comes up and asks me what I like to do, I'm a little offended (laughs) because I'm not stupid. I'm just sick, right? I can't walk, but I can't think. I've been here 38 years. And Jesus comes up to him, and he asks this simple question, and uh, the guy's response is, it's interesting, the whole response. I, let, me, let me read a little bit. The first time I read this, and for years when I read this, I, I would feel like he was saying this in a very nice way, like, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me in the pool. Would you please put me in the pool? But then as I started reading it and reading how this whole story goes, I started to think that this guy is like I am when I have the flu on the fifth day and you come in my bedroom and you ask me a dumb question. I have this little reply and it's usually not real nice. It's a little sarcastic. I might say something like this, but in a particular tone, I can't, sir. Look, look at me. I can't get in the pool. 
And, and if, you, if you knew a little bit, of history, I have no one to put me in the pool or the water when the water boats. Someone else always gets in there before me. Look at me. I've been here for 38 years. It's interesting about this story, if you read a little bit of the backstory or, or read in that little parenthesis, there seems to be this superstition that these folks have that every once in a while an angel will dip into that pool and stir the waters. And if you can get in there quick enough after the angel stirs the water, if you're the first one in and only the first one in, you be healed. I sound like the way God rolls? Not at all. But that's the superstition of the day. And for a lot of us that are Christians, sometimes we're more superstitious than we are followers of Jesus because we just don't know what the truth is. We don't know how God operates. So we, we try to get his favor by just doing the right things at the right times, which is what this guy seems to be doing. Jesus responds, to his sarcasm, I, I think, I don't know for certain, but Jesus says this, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. I, I kind of feel like he's talking, to, he's talking down to him a little bit, like a little annoyed. Like, and, and one of the translations says, get up, shut up, and get up. All right? Get up. You're going to keep on whining, or you're going to get up. It's not like this little sweet thing. It makes, Jesus seems to have some compassion for him, but there's also this irritation because there's no belief in this dude. Most of the miracles in the New Testament, the guy or the lady, they believe or they're hoping and believing for somebody else. That is not the case in this passage, which was baffling to me when I first read it. Like, how am I going to teach this? Perhaps you can relate with the guy a little bit. You're that cynical that you just can't see Jesus no matter what happens. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat. Sleeping mat was made of straw. They still sell these little things. They're made of straw, and they're, they're kind of weaved together with some string, and they roll them up and put them on their shoulder. So he's healed. He stands up. He, he does exactly what Jesus says. He rolls up the sleeping mat and began walking. But the miracle happened on the Sabbath. If you were going to underline something in your Bible to understand what John's trying to accomplish here, he's telling this story about this guy, but he's really telling about the day that he did it which was the Sabbath. So let's, let's do a little Sabbath understanding. Sabbath is Saturday. Get this clear. Early church, after Jesus died and was buried and rose again, appeared to the disciples like we talked about last week. The early church began meeting in the temple on Sunday night. Sometimes they'd meet in homes on Sunday night. They would still go to the temple on Saturday, the Sabbath, because they were Jews. And that's how it worked. Uh, ben Carson is a Seventh-day Adventist. He would argue that the Sabbath is Saturday, and I wouldn't argue with him. It is Saturday. So they meet on Saturdays. Their churches meet on Saturdays. But early in the beginning of the church, the, the believers, the followers of Jesus, started meeting on Sunday. Why, why Sunday night and not Sunday morning like us at 1015? Is this like the most godly time to meet? Obviously not. What's the church? The church are the followers of Jesus. And they gather. You know why they gathered on Sunday night? Because they had to work on Sunday. It was the first day of the week. It was a work day. Everybody worked. And after work, they still had energy to come and remember. You know why they were getting together on Sunday? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection happened on Sunday. So we were, you know, I wore some crazy shirt last week, make, make Cheryl happy, kind of. And because it's Easter, right? And we celebrate Easter once a year. The early church met on Sundays because Easter was every week. They did not want to forget the resurrection. And what they would do is they'd pass bread and juice. It had been unleavened bread. It had been a little nastier than what we got right here. And you could hear it crack. And they'd pass it. They, and they weren't worried about the germs. So they, they would probably drink out of the same cup. 
didn't have lipstick, so you didn't have to worry about it. So anyway, they, 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 they'd pass it around. They'd remember the broken body and blood of Jesus, and they'd celebrate his resurrection, and they'd sit on, in their little living room, and they'd tell stories about Jesus. They weren't always dependent on an expert to be in a room to talk. They wouldn't sit like this looking forward. They probably sat in a circle and just told stories about Jesus, and they did it weekly. It was just the norm. That's why we meet on Sunday. Because they started us that way, and we continue. There's no Bible verse that says we have to meet on Sunday. It'd be very hard to argue that Sunday is the Sabbath, just so you understand how the Bible works. Now, you could argue very strongly from the Bible that we ought to take a day off in the week. And I'm going to tell you, when I read that this week, that hurt. Because I don't really like going slow, and sure enough, I don't want to stop for a day. Anybody feel my pain? I like to go fast. I like to pull up to the light and figure out which lane is going to go faster. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, I'm in that lane. And then I'm going to weave from there. I like to go to the grocery store and anticipate if I can manipulate one of the ladies to come to another aisle so I can get to the front. Anybody else do that? Anybody else keep their time on how the lanes are working to see if you won to get out the building? I, I don't even know how to go to the store and not do that. I like to go fast. And so the last thing I like to do is slow down. Let, let me read to you what Jesus says about the Sabbath, which for the Jews was Saturday. But for us as followers of Jesus, it should be a part of our lives, and that is rest. He says the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. That's in Mark. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. What's he saying? He's saying when we gave you a day off of the week, remember at the beginning in Genesis, there's this curse, and Adam's got to work. And then, then you come into the, to, uh, Exodus, and the law is laid out, and God mandates this one day of rest per week. And he points back to creation. Did God need a day off after working sick? He's omnipotent. He don't get tired. Did he need a day off to rethink about himself? <laughs> no. He needed a day, uh, he did it on purpose to model for us to take in a day off, a week, because we need rest. As I read uh, a book that I read when I was uh, younger, a lot of my kids read this in their teens, called Life You Always Wanted, it's by John Ortberg. It's kind of a, a newer, newer book about the spiritual disciplines. It was... It, when I'm reading this passage, I read Sabbath, and I remember this chapter in this book. I read it again yesterday, and it was just painful. You got any books like that? You just read that, and you're like, man, I wish I hadn't underlined the stuff that hurts so much. That's what this one is. The chapter is called An Unhurried Life. And he uh, constantly is talking about working on the art of slowing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to confess some sin in my life. And I hope that it hurts yours <laughs> if you need it to. There's this uh, addiction I have to, to moving. And what, what scared me the most when I read this, one of his quotes was, uh, I wrote it down instead of, says, uh, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. That hurts. Love always takes time. I don't know about you, but 
That made me check up a little bit. Read to you. Love and hurry are always, are, are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. So when God gave us this gift of a Sabbath, he was giving us time for relationship, right? So there's this day, they set aside this day and, and slowed down so that they could enjoy the things that they had. I, number one, a relationship with Yahweh, the God of the universe. And two, this group of people that live in my home. Gave them, gave them a day to just slow down and, and allow them to love well. You ever driving down the road and you're so on task that you can't see the people in your rearview mirror sitting in the back seat? I, I find myself doing that a lot lately, and I, 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 there's got to be an adjustment made. I felt it as I read it this week. And sometimes you're just going, uh-huh, because you gotta say, you got to at least acknowledge that somebody's talking but you're really on this mission to get to the next spot. I, I felt that deeply. One of the other things that he said in this passage, I mean, in this chapter, he says, we have largely traded wisdom for information, depth for breadth. We want to microwave maturity. What's that mean? We've largely traded wisdom for information. That's why the newscaster on Fox has got to be good looking. You know why? Because all she got to do or he's got to do is know something. Used to be that it was an old guy. You wanted a little wisdom. You wanted, little, you wanted to deliver it in a way where somebody had lived a little while to give you insight to how it goes. But we're addicted to information, which makes us go faster and faster and faster and faster. So we exchange depth for breadth. And we want to microwave maturity. That was good. <laughs> it was painful. We did testimony time last Sunday. That was kind of our, our little challenge at Easter, if you missed. We asked everybody to go home and share your story at the table. What's your testimony? How did you meet Jesus? And, and at our table, a number of the kids shared, and almost all of them mentioned this one place they go in the summer. It's called Camp Hope. Your kids want to go, we can hook you up. There's a website. They go for a couple weeks. Here's one of the interesting things they do at Camp Hope. When you get there, it's, it's great at teen camp for high school kids they take your cell phone and they put it in a Ziploc bag and they hold it for you for the whole week. Boy, you talk about freak zone. A couple of the kids are like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> so within a few days, what's really interesting about being at Camp Hope, despite not the greatest facilities in the world and enough, enough seaweed in the lake to drown you if you dive in <laughs> because you can't get loose, uh, is that the solitude breaking away from everything else in the speed of life and just thinking about these people that are around me and hearing about Jesus seems to break through to people's hearts. So if you need a solution to your speed, a great discipline is to take a day of the week and block it out and go slower. Have some solitude. For some of us, turning the TV off or the radio off while we're driving around the road scares us to death, which points to our hearts. We don't know who we are. We're scared to be alone. In reality, we're a more alone people than there's ever been. So it's, it's this moment where the writer and John, he addresses this thing in the Sabbath, and their culture is just normal. In a minute, you're going to see how it's abused by the religious folks. But I want to give you a picture that it was actually given as a gift to mankind to save our souls from being stolen by somebody else. 
who want us to go faster. And me personally, I've got some work to do. Some discipline that used to be there that needs to be thought through again. Maybe you do. I'll read you a little. I think I got time. I'll read you uh, some questions in the back that I thought were funny. Do you live with a daily sense? This is yes or no, so it's not very complicated. You can't fail. Do you live with a daily sense that there's not enough time to get done everything that you need to accomplish? Do you find yourself talk, talking faster because there's no, no other way to say everything you need to say? I don't do that. Uh, but I do this. Do you nod a lot when a person is talking slowly in an effort to keep them moving along? I do it. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Do you ever drive faster than is safe? I'm about to do that in five minutes. But, uh, <laughs> but I love this. He puts in parentheses. Even sometimes when you're not in a hurry. Anybody do that? I'm like, what am I in a hurry for? I don't even have anywhere to be. I'm passing everybody. It goes on. I like this one. Do you have a big pile of magazines, newspapers, or books that you hope to read someday? You got them stacked. Everybody keeps giving me books. I can't read it. Uh, do you find it difficult to say no when others ask you to do things that will add one more item to your schedule? Good word. Here's what I like to tie that to in it. The Holy Spirit tied it to mine. That means that I lack faith, which stinks to see when you look in the mirror. Looking in the mirror, I'm looking at myself. What that means is that I think I control my destiny. And if I go harder, perhaps I can get it all done. And so to take a day and to rest and allow what happens to happen just doesn't make sense. But perhaps by God's design and today by his conviction. I don't know that we necessarily need to lock it into a day of the week. But it certainly needs to be a practice, certainly a practice of the heart, huh? We block time to be healthy so that we can take advantage of the best parts of our life and love the people that are right there beside us and certainly love the God of the Bible. I'll read them. So the Jewish leaders... Objected. Remember, I told you to kind of bold print that one, one little phrase. He says, uh, but all of this happened on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders objected, and they said to the man who was cured, I love this. This guy wasn't walking a couple of days ago, and now he's walking. And you think they give him a hug or something or a slap on the butt. You know, like, I'm proud of you, bro. I'm glad you're walking. Um, <laughs> but instead, they said, you can't work on the Sabbath, exclamation point. They own him about it. You can't work. Stop carrying your mat. Put your mat down. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. I'm going to tell you what I'd have done with that mat. There's just this crazy moment, and religion will do this. I wrote this down, and one of the things I read this, in religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. You hear that? You ever been around the religious people? Please don't be one. If you are, you can, I mean, grow quick or move on. We don't want that. In religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. But we're not talking about the essentials of the faith when you read that. We're talking about stuff like this. You know what they did? God taught in the Old Testament that we were to obey the Sabbath. But you know what the Pharisees did and the teachers of the law? They added 39 criteria to what that meant. 
Most folks would say what God wrote in the Old Testament was that you shouldn't do your job seven days a week. If you're a farmer, you take a day off. You give the land a day off. You give yourself, if, if you, whatever your job is, you take a day off from how you learn your, earn your living. But you know what the Pharisees did? They made 39 rules, and one of them was you couldn't transport anything from one abode to another. And that's what they, they qualified. This guy's carrying this mat from one place to another, so they jumped on him. It's really dangerous, and I could go on. You've heard me go on before. This very dangerous seed that can sneak in among those that follow Jesus is to lean toward performance and measure our relationship with him by what we do as opposed to what he did. And the next thing you know, who are we worshiping? Ourselves instead of the Savior. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who healed me told me to pick up my wife. I love this part. They're, they're on him. He's like, hey, 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 easy, bro. The man who, he healed me, and he told me to get my mat and walk. So I just did what he said. Hey, take it up with him. Yeah, punk. What's up with that? Page flipped on me. I got so fired up. Oh. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. So Jesus heals him and disappeared into the crowd, which I think is interesting because most of the miracles that you see, you actually see somebody coming to Jesus in belief and in desperation, and they, they reach for Jesus. This guy takes the miracle and doesn't even get Jesus' name. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something else may happen worse to you. So you imagine showing up at Radius this morning, you're walking out in the lobby, and the Son of God comes up, and he grabs you on the arm and says, stop sinning. <laughs> that would be scary. That would be scary if just a regular person said it to you. But the Son of God grabs this guy and says, so stop sinning. What are you doing? He's only been healed for like four hours. I don't know what he's done in the last four hours, but Jesus challenges him, and he said, or something worse is going to happen. What does he mean? doesn't seem like the sweetest thing to say. Seems as if Jesus is irritated with his guy, his lack of belief. But he's warning him that, hey, man, 38 years of being an invalid is nothing compared to spending eternity in hell. You got this great opportunity. You just witnessed the Son of God heal you. It should have made something in your heart come to life. Instead, you're the same dude. Nothing's changed except that you can walk. Check out what the guy does. It's probably the most difficult verse in the whole passage. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he, he ratted out Jesus. I mean, you talk about the first thing. Anybody ever seen the movie Sound of Music? Yeah. All right, that's like two of y'all. My wife laughed. All right, so it's this old musical. Some of y'all embarrassed. I saw that. It's just an old movie. It don't mean like you're weird. It's just an old movie. But this little little punk kid. You remember the little girl who sings, I am 16, that little part, that part? <laughs> I've seen it like 12 times. I was forced to as a child. But uh, this kid turns in a family to the Nazis. He, he calls them out. He rats out the people he loves because he's so mesmerized by the law that Hitler has brought in. So he sells out his girlfriend, the one he loves the most. It's craziness. It's amazing what the cool kids can make you do. And that's true for kids in high school. It's really true for kids in middle school. But it's true for 45-year-olds. 
It's amazing what a group of people, especially if they seem to have the sway of culture, can make you do. And the next thing you know, you miss Jesus, the Son of God, even though he's treated you so well, you can't see him. Because all you can see is their accolade. Here's this poor guy. He's laid by that pool most of his, his, his life, and now he's healed, and he finds himself in the presence of the most, the most powerful people in his world. And all, he's just seduced by their power, and all he wants to do is please them. He can't see Jesus. And we can do that in a million ways, can't we? Man, when we were in our 20s, uh, Isaiah, our oldest, had to go to school, and, and we had all this pressure on Cheryl and I on where we're going to send him to school. We had this group that said, I'd never send my kid to public school. We had this group that said, send them to private school. We had to say, it's going to be healthiest for them to go to public school. We had this big debate, you know. And the private school people, I'm like, y'all got a different paycheck than I do, I think, so let's remove y'all. All right, and uh, and and the homeschool people though they were loud, and, and and the public school people they were loud, and we had this this thing, and you feel this pressure to make this decision. And some of y'all there, some of y'all been there, try to because you love these kids and you want to do best, and in some ways you start telling yourself that I want to do what's best for my kids, and so you listen to all the voices. And what we found, we argued, but we argued. Both of us were in different camps, and so it was on, and uh, we had these debates. But but you know what happened eventually. We had to ask the question, what does God want? But a lot of folks never get there. And so what happens is they choose one or the other, and then there's this deep pride in one or the other. And all of a sudden, these voices in either camp or third camp, which I couldn't afford, in any of those, the three camps, all of a sudden the voices get louder, and the next thing you know, you find yourself bowing to the people in the choice that you made that they pressured you to make, and now everything is dictated by the co-op. And what the ladies at the co-op are going to think. Or about what the dads at the baseball field are going to think. Right? And the next thing you know, we ain't asked God anything. Our decisions haven't been under his authority at all. And when they're under his authority, I could choose one or the other or the third for that matter. I could choose any of those and place myself under the authority of God and assume that I'm being obedient and trust him with my children and still parent hard whatever I chose with all that I'm worth because I, I love these kids. I can't let the cool kids, I'm 45, I'm 48, 49, how old am I? I'm old. <laughs> I think that's what happens, isn't it? That's what they told me. You know what? You move in a daggum subdivision, and you go in the neighbor's house, and they got something set up a little different, and you go in the next, and it's amazing how that weird culture, I don't even know if folks are trying to press you, but you feel like your house got to look like theirs, don't you? This is weird pressure then to graduate from that subdivision and go to the next. If you're single, there seems to be this, especially if you've been single for a while, there's this pressure to find a spouse. And maybe the married people put it on you, maybe the other single people, but all of a sudden it becomes the center focus of your life. And there's, it, the danger of it is that it gets away from you, it consumes your mind, your resources, and your time. And you miss Jesus. Because you're trying to replace him. Hey, we all do it. Work life, right? Work life has these, these weird dynamics. I used to work in a mill, and, and these weird dynamics in the break room at the mill where you, you wanted to impress all of these people, and you didn't really know why. 
All right, now don't go to work tomorrow and tell your boss that you don't need to do what he says because the preacher said, no, the preacher said, do what your boss says because if you lose your job, I ain't helping you. But uh, uh, there's this still a pressure that happens in every environment that we are in that can steal the opportunity to see Jesus. I'll tell you how I know that we are selling our soul as a nation because uh, you don't have to watch the news long, do you? I could go through the list. I probably shouldn't. Then I'll start venting. That's probably not real healthy. We struggle to be at something like this. I know that. The stats show that folks go to church like once a month now. That's average folks that are committed to a church is once a month. Hey, I'm not trying to kill you for it. I'm just saying it's just not priority. As a nation, it's no longer a priority. So there's no rule about that. I don't have some rule. I can't read it out of here. That you, and we don't have any stars that we got by your name where we're counting. You don't have to worry. Nobody's going to send you a sheet. But what's true about church folks is this, this is just not important, which the question is then, do we love God? Because we don't have time for him. If we don't have time for him, then we got to ask some hard questions, right? You could do that with our resources, where our dollars go. One of the best things I heard this week was from, from an older guy. We were sitting together, and, I was, and we were doing testimony time, and I was asking what was the most important thing. And, and I was naming. I was actually telling about Keith, who I introduced to last week, and we did a little thing. And, and he spoke back to me, and he said, man, when I started doing a quiet time, I'm like, man, that's an old word. We don't even use that anymore. But he said, I started doing a quiet time every day. Everything changed. I've been in church my whole life. And it was in his late 30s, he started spending time with God daily. He started giving God time daily. And he said, it was like the lights came on. They had never been on. I've been to church thousands of times. And the lights came on. It's funny, that almost seems like an insult to our intelligence, doesn't it? Well, that makes sense. Maybe we ought to try it, huh? A couple minutes left. Let me read to you a couple more verses. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. So Jesus heals a guy, and the Jews jump on him. It is crazy. But Jesus replied, I love this. My father is always working, and so am I. If you know the rabbis of the day, all the, all the prominent teachers, they all agreed that God, Yahweh, could work on Sunday or Saturday, on the Sabbath, that God could work on the Sabbath. Obviously, I'm glad they gave him permission, but God works whenever he wants to. He never gets tired, so everybody agreed. And you know what Jesus is saying? When he says this, he's like, you guys said it. I'm just doing what you said. Yahweh can work on Saturday. So can I. I'm his son. But it is this Big blow. I want you to feel this. If you wanted to pick a fight, you know how with your spouse or with your brother or your sister or your cousin, there's just this one thing you can say, and it's on. You, you know how it is? I, I, that's how it works in my house. There's a couple things. Cheryl knows what they are. She can push the point. And for other people in my world, if they say something about, go ahead. If you say something about Cheryl, you want to see what I can do? Just say something about Cheryl. I'm going to come. I'm going to get me a two-by. No, I can't. I think I'm going to follow you. I can't. But I'm going to come. It makes me so mad. I say stuff I didn't mean to say. Well, in their culture, you say something like you're the son of God and you don't respect the Sabbath, it is on. Jesus is picking a fight right now. 
He's doing it on purpose. He heals this guy on purpose. John's recording it on purpose. He's breaking the Sabbath on purpose. He's putting it in front of their face that I am the son of God. Why? Chapter 5 is where it all begins. Depending on how you view it, it's either this downhill road to the cross or this uphill road to the cross. Because Jesus is on mission. The whole reason he came to this earth was so that he could die on your behalf, so that you could have rest, so that you didn't have to strive, so that you didn't have to meet all the criteria, because you could never meet it. The best of the religious folks, the folks that are angry with him right now, the folks that are throwing him under the bus and will eventually hang him on the cross, they're miserable because they can't meet their own criteria. They're going to fail. And failing means certain judgment before a holy God. So just like the early church, we set it up. It's up front. There's bread and juice up here. The band will come up and lead us in worship. And here's what we can do. We can remember because early church didn't want us to forget. Every Sunday night, they got together. They wanted to remember the broken body of Jesus and his spilled blood so that you could remember that the rest that you could have never had by keeping all the Sabbaths, you have through Jesus, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the one who brings ultimate rest. He, he gives us this great gift, as they did, as he, the Father gave in, in, in the Old Testament, this gift of a day off. Jesus gives us rest eternal because that blood never gets old. It never has to be re-spilled. It's done. It did the work. It covered my sins. And I don't, because I believe the simple step of belief, I don't ever have to sweat it again. I don't have to walk around feeling guilty because that saved me. And I have real rest. There's more, but let's worship him now. Jesus, you know us. <laughs> Some of us fly around with our heads cut off. You know us. And we like it that way. I pray that your spirit would convict us right now where that flying around keeps us from knowing you and knowing you well. Lord, you know some of us in the room, we came from pretty religious background. And, uh, man, we can be arrogant at times. So much so that uh, we confuse the people around us. Some of us, uh, now we slip up that way on a regular basis, so help us. Help us run away from that. We don't want to be manipulated by the, the cool kids, whatever side of the Whatever side of the spectrum the right or left they come from, they give us some freedom. Jesus, right now, we want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for covering our need for rest. Thank you for giving us ultimate rest by dying for our sins. We praise you for it today. Listen to us as we worship. Amen. <laughs>